one word stands out. It's the word wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Oh, we've got to... We're no, recording this tonight? Yep. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> thinking about wrath and the last sermon I heard on wrath. September 1960 at Harding College. Now, I'm sure I probably slept through a couple, but you know, uh, I, I doubt if you can remember the last time because it is not preached in churches. That's about the fastest way to have to get a U-Haul is to preach on wrath. They just do not want you to. And so we look back 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, we never hear the wrath of God. So God's wrath is God's anger. It is God's indignation. And I realize those are very, very strong words. But see, the church and Christians always want to run over to the love of God. Well, you can't appreciate the love of God if you don't appreciate the wrath of God because He is righteous. Wrath is closely related to judgment. And judgment is the result of the decisions that God makes. God in his judgment, thus in his wrath, he is not prejudiced and he's not arbitrary. God's wrath, notice where it's revealed, against all ungodliness of man. And the ungodliness, as we saw last time, is the godlessness. It's really just defined as, in our culture, as those who just do not want any mention of God. They don't want God in their life and they do not want God mentioned. So, wrath is a definite attribute of God. You know, if you just think back through Scripture, uh, I mean, the Old Testament is covered with the wrath of God. But it started in Eden. You know, that was God's indignation. God's anger. Then you had the flood out of, I don't know how many uh, maybe uh, 100 million people lived on the, on the planet. I don't know. 10 million. But only 8 were left. That's God's wrath. The Tower of Babel. Nadab and Abihu. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Egypt. Think of those 10 plagues that God brought. In Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, which is a book that I love, there are nine nations mentioned. Two of them are Judah and Israel that receive the judgment of God. In the New Testament, well, we don't have to go too far, do we? We've got Ananias and Sapphira. We've got, uh, well, there's so many examples. Uh, you go to the, to the book of Revelation. Six of the seven churches of Asia were all warned regarding the wrath of God and having their life removed because of the things that were going on in those churches. Hebrews 10, 
31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So in verse 17 and verse 18, we find that there are two revelations. A revelation is that which is uncovered or that which is revealed. The first revelation is the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is revealed by the gospel. The second revelation is that his wrath is expressed against men for their ungodliness, for their unrighteousness. God's wrath is first expressed in the words, he gave them over. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28, three times. So the judgment of the sinner begins not on judgment day, but by being turned over to sin. Do you see that? They're turned over. The man who chooses to live apart from God is then finally consumed by his own unrighteousness. And he remains unfit for the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 5, verse 1, verse 3 to verse 7, I'll just I'll tell you where it is. Be you therefore followers of God as dear children. But fornication, all uncleanness, all covetousness, let it not even be named among you, not even once. You are saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So you know what that tells me? And this may sound harsh. It's not intended that way. But we need to be cautious about saying to people who pass away, well, you know, they're in a better place. <laughs> There's three steps down. Idolatry, unrestrained lust, which is addiction and a depraved mind. That's verse 23, 24, and 28. In idolatry, man exchanges the glory of God for the creature. Then man becomes like the object of his worship. Then unrestrained lust, God gives them over to their, to their lust, to their addictions of their hearts in order that they can just go on about dishonoring their bodies. Then the depraved mind, the man who chooses not to honor God in his knowledge, God gives him over to a depraved mind, a mind that is worthless. So man who chooses to live apart from God, what's the result? He becomes a fool. A moros, as we looked at last week. A moron. Now, In the seven churches of Asia, which I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, I want to summarize a couple of those churches and how that they were judged and why they were judged. In Revelation 2.6, it says that Christ 
hates. He doesn't love. He hates the deeds, the sins of the Nicolaitans. Church members. Why? They preached the doctrine of tolerance. They preached the doctrine of compromise. They preached the doctrine of the culture of the day. And Randy shared that one night. Their downfall was the endorsing of doctrine of tolerance. We'll be tolerant here. And, co and compromise. Holy living is not being religious. Holy living is not being inclusive. And holy living is not being multicultural. Holy living is to be set apart from the world. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates our body or our spirit, perfecting holiness out of fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. In Revelation 3.20, to the church at Thyatira, there was a prophetess. She's referred to as being Jezebel. What did she do? She taught and she seduced my servants to commit fornication. I don't know, Jezebel may have been the senior pastor. She had a lot of influence. She certainly had a lot of authority. She had a lot of leadership. What did her teaching include? She taught the depths of Satan. Well, what are the depths of Satan? Those 22 sins that we read in Romans 1. If she didn't teach all of them, she taught several of them. So what does that tell us? God judges what we tolerate. He says that I am he that searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give to every one of you according to your works. Revelation 2.23. So man's way is the way of ungodliness. Man's way is the way of unrighteousness. Therefore, man is without excuse. Now, I'm going to move ahead here a little bit. And went to the wrong place. Just give me a second here. Still worrying about what's on my pants down there. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 29 is where we concluded that Tracy read. In the NIV, which she read from, it says that they have become filled with every form of wickedness. Now, before I progress further, uh, we have a tendency as the body of Christ to run ahead and well, let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about how much God loves us. Let's get the sinner saved. And so all we want to teach on is salvation and the same thing. And we still have the same problems. I want you to notice how the book of Romans is laid out. Because Paul was the greatest scholar of any writer of the Bible. The book sets forth the basic nature 
of man. That's what we've looked at in chapter 1. This is our third time. And the basic nature of man is unrighteousness. That's chapter 1, verse 18. And you know what? We'll continue to talk about it until we get to chapter 3, verse 20. Then the book follows up with the basic nature of God, that God is righteous. That starts in 321, and it goes through 425. Then it's chapter 5 before the book sets forth the justified man. That's chapter 5, 1 to 21. And the justified man, we'll see when we get there, is not necessarily the saved man. Because that's again another term that is really misused. Oh, I'm saved. The book then sets forth the overcoming man. That's chapter 6 through 8. The book then sets forth a sovereign God in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then in chapters 12 through 16, the book sets forth the righteous man who lives in the world. Now, let's talk about the lust of the heart. In recent years, same-sex relationships has been glamorized in our culture. Sadly, even our Supreme Court has approved same-sex relationships and marriage. And yet, Jesus confirmed that God's will for marriage has always been a lifelong heterosexual monogamous relationship. That's found in Matthew 19, 4 to 6. I'm sure you're familiar with that. But the alternatives have become acceptable. They've even become fashionable today. But what they are are expressions of God abandoning people to the lust of their hearts or to impurity, which can be translated, impurity is translated really as vileness. And that's what it is. It's violence. Romans 1.23 speaks of them exchanging God's glory for the figments of their imagination. Romans 1.25 identifies same-sex practice as a specific example of what happens when the truth of God is exchanged. What's it exchanged for? alive and when veneration of the creature substitutes for veneration of the creator the LGBTQ movement and the trans movement are religious cults that's what they are they're religious cults you say how could they be that I don't hear any religion a religion perfectly describes these verses. You see, the movement enslaves people to a point that the followers are passionate. And in many cases, those who follow that movement, they would die for the cause. Now, today, if a gay individual is killed out of hate, what does he become? A martyr. Then, it's not only the lust of the heart, but they exchange the truth. For this reason, God tells you, Romans 1, 26, 
that refers to the fact that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then they worship like a religion and they serve the creature. Romans 1.25 God alone is to be worshipped. God alone is to be served in all things. So it is a misuse of passion and pleasure which results uh, in being handed over to dishonorable passions. Now, Paul doesn't single out either men or women, but both, because both alike are contrary to God's good and acceptable and perfect will, which we read in chapter 12, verse 2. When they exchange the truth of God, here's what happens. Natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. It says it right there in verse 26. They take the natural relations, exchange them, they are contrary to nature. By nature, Paul's not talking about the culture. It's not what's culturally acceptable or what is even approved by some court. But he's pointing out to that which man's moral nature compare, uh, compels him to approve and to defend it. The description of lesbian activity in verse 26 is matched in verse 27 by a description of same-sex attraction that occurs in men. Now, there's four phases of homosexuality that is mentioned <coughs> right here in Romans 1. First of all, what do men do? They devote to other men, or it could be women to women, they devote to other men the romantic attraction that God gives men for women, or women is given for men. Number two, men are inflamed with defiling desires for other men. Number three, men perform literally the shameful act. They do so with other men, or women to women. And as a result, these men suffer the implications of their sin, the very thing that they have indulged. Well, now, what would those implications be? Well, they could certainly be guilt, the burden of sin. They know it's sin in this life. Then the punishment of their sin, which they know they're going to face on the day of judgment. Verse 28 returns to the key thought of verse 21. People, these homosexuals, they knew God. You see that? They knew God. But by dishonoring Him, their foolish heart was darkened. This explains how good people can do the unthinkable. Verse 28 returns to verse 21. Well, like I said that. Verse 28, Paul states the consequences of their debased mind. What did God do? Pray for them? He gave them up. They already knew God. God gave them up in their sexual domain. Verse 24 to 20 and 26. So what does God do? He withdraws the restraints of a mind that is directed by grace. The grace 
causes sanctified saints to live a moral life. But now having tried God's patience beyond its limits, which he mentions in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, these then go and do what they ought not to do. Let's look at the fallen human condition. Paul describes the morals and the practices in the Greco-Roman world where this letter was sent and to the people who received it were well aware of. These are the very ones whom the church was raised up to evangelize. Where Paul says in Romans 1, 14 to 17, he says, I'm going to them. I'm indebted. I'm obligated. He says, I'm eager. And then he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the gospel that is God's power unto salvation. So Paul declares what Jesus had declared in Mark 7, 21 to 23. Out of the heart of man, from within comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All, A-L-L, these things, they come from within and they defile a person. So it's a condition of the human heart, which you've heard me mention several times, Jeremiah 17 and 9, and that is the heart is desperately wicked and who can know it? All the sins, all of the behaviors listed by Paul there in Romans 1 is unrighteousness. It's the very opposite of who God is. God is righteous. Human sexuality is a gift not to be squandered. The picture painted by Paul is one of human decadence. When people turned their backs on God, is that not what they did? Verse 28. They are then filled, verse 29. That's in the passive voice. It likely reflects God's active role. We need to see that. God is involved. With all manner of wickedness. So, remember, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, did he not? He released him to do exactly what he was going to do. And that's what God does with these who continue in sin, who know God, but they're godless. They don't want God. And they're going to justify what they do. So God turns them over. People have an innate awareness that evil that is described in verses 28 to 31 deserves God's punishment. The full wages of sin that we read in Romans 6, 23. What is that? That's banishment from God's presence and the eternal punishment which follows. That's confirmed in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They will suffer punishment from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, that's horrible. That is a tragic outcome. And we're not sitting here condemning if you have a child or 
family member or loved one or someone that has a particular lifestyle. We're looking at this from God's perspective. It's a tragic outcome for those who practice such things. But what's even worse than practicing is to give approval to those who do practice it. In other words, they vote their approval. They join organizations that support the cause. They defend the right to an unholy, ungodly lifestyle. How do they show their support? Well, one of the ways they fly the flag for a whole month. They fly that capital. I'm going to mention our president because upon being sworn in, he gave his support, his encouragement, and his vote for homosexuality and for pedophilia. He has filled government at every level with homosexuals. So, let me ask you this. How can we be showing love by giving approval or by giving encouragement to lawless behavior? See, we always want to make it, somebody wants to quickly make it the argument, well, we've got to, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. How can we, again, by showing love by, and give approval and encouragement to lawless behavior? See, to condone others' abominable, self-destructive behavior leading to a lifestyle of a multitude of sins, which is mentioned there in Romans 1, 8, 28 to 31. Now, someone will say, well, homosexuality is not the only sin that's listed. But it's the one sin that has the seal of approval of our Supreme Court. It has the approval of the White House. It permeates our culture to the point we now have drag queen stories in, you know, in elementary schools. I talked to my daughter who is in Flower Mound and the problems that they're having in those schools with the books that are given to elementary school children to read and as they're in the library. You might recall uh, the last uh, school year uh, there at South Lake, the uproar that took place. I mean, they're teaching children about the queer lifestyle. Then, same-sex marriage is acceptable in some churches. Some churches ordain homosexuals. They're ordained to ministry. And that is dividing the body of Christ. The second largest denomination in the United States has faced that the last five years. I've had to finally come face to face with it. It's divided the United Methodist Church. Thousands and thousands of churches. Now, we begin our study with the warning that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Romans 1.18 God's response is the consequences of human bad decisions and behavior. 
Now I want to try to answer a few questions about homosexuality because these are the primary questions that come up. If the Bible says so little about homosexuality, why do Christians insist so much about talking about it? Well, homosexuality was a comparatively uncontroversial sin among ancient Jews and Christians. There is no historical or biblical account that ancient Judaism or early Christianity tolerated any expression of homosexual activity. The Bible says a lot about idolatry. It says a lot about religious hypocrisy, about economic injustice, about pagan worship. Why? Because these were the common sins in both Testaments. There's little said about incest. There's little said about child abuse or child trafficking or probably 30 or 40 other sins if you just think of them. That does not make them insignificant or less serious. Here's what the Bible says about homosexuality. The Bible is not silent. Genesis 19, the infamous cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed primarily for homosexuality. The very name Sodom references sodomy. That's what they were known for. Levitical law, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. You know, it's not too hard to understand. No wonder the Jewish, you know, Jews didn't have too much of a problem with it. Leviticus 20 and 13. If a man is also with man, as he lieth with woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, and their blood shall be upon them. The death sentence. Then we read Romans 1, 24 to 32. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, or abusers of themselves with mankind. Just another form of homosexuality. And such were some of you. But you were washed. See, they had change. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1, verse 9 through 11. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous man. The law is made for the unholy and the profane. For them that defile themselves with mankind. That's homosexuals. It's contrary to sound doctrine. Now I want to point out a passage in Revelation, chapter 22, 14 and 15. I mentioned to you. Uh, I didn't I really didn't know this when we studied Revelation. But you know, you continue on, and I read that and I thought, I'm gonna figure this out one of these days or check it out. Here's what Revelation 22, 14, and 15 says. Blessed are they that do the commandments, his commandments, for they have a right to the tree of life, 
they may enter in through the gates of the city. So, if you read on, who doesn't enter the, uh, the gates of the city? For without are the dogs. So my question is, who are the dogs? Dogs was a Roman euphemism. It was for homosexual, homosexuals or male prostitutes. Among Greeks, metaphorically, was moral impurity. And it was an epithet that was used for any impurity. They would refer to that person, he's a dog. So, then we have to consider all the references in the text about marriage. I mean, we got marriage in Genesis as to what God wants, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Malachi, Matthew, and Ephesians. So the next question is, why did Jesus just not talk about homosexuality? He did. He talked about the union of a man and a woman, a biological man and a biological woman, not trans, not homosexual. Matthew 19, 46, Mark 10, 6 to 9. He condemned the sin of pornea. Mark 7, 21. Out of the heart proceeded fornications. Now, fornications has been discussed among the church. And, you know, an, an adulterer's an adulterer, fornication is something you do, you know, before you get married. That, I don't know where that conception came from, but it's not correct. It comes from the word pornea. And it's a broad word that encompasses every kind of sexual sin. I went to a leading New, uh, New Testament lexicon, and it defines pornea as unlawful sexual intercourse, homosexuality, prostitution, unchastity, and fornication. <coughs> a Greek lexicon, uh, English lexicon of the New Testament in early Christian literature, it happens to be the third edition, reference 854. So I'm not making this up. In Greek literature, there are numerous references to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. The pornea, which is wickedness, sexual sin, in the Old Testament occurs for any sexual practice, including that's outside of marriage between a man and a woman that is prohibited by the Torah. Jesus didn't have to give a special sermon to the LGBTQ community in his day because his listeners understood that same-sex behavior was prohibited by the Pentateuch, the five books of law. And it was one of many expressions of sexual sin. That word Cornea, it was off limits for the Jews. Now, that Greek lexicon I mentioned, I also went to some Greek literature, I went to Jewish history, and read from Jewish authorities, defining their use of the word pornea in their writings, which is sexual sin. Here's what they said. 
It's lascivious, indecency, absence of restraint, rape, wantonness, can't be satisfied, excess, licentiousness, the unregenerate who are past feeling, filthy of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, shameless conduct, lewd, lustful, detestable, perversion, obscene, excessive indulgence, vile, unclean, fornication, adultery. Case closed. <laughs> then the question comes up, well, how can it be a sin if someone is born that way? You hear that today, don't you? Be born that way. Listen, we're all products of nature and nurture. We all struggle with desires that should not be fulfilled. We have longings for things that are illicit. See, again, Jeremiah said it well. The heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? There's fallen people with a nature for sin and for self-deception. Our own sense of desire and delight or pleasure and pain, that's not self-validating. Because you feel some way doesn't make it okay. See, people may, through a conscious decision of their own, they may be drawn to a number of things. Binge drinking comes to mind, to promiscuity, to rage, to self-pity, to gambling. I mean, you can just think of all types of, of uh, sinful behaviors. They didn't study, you know, to become that. They chose it as they were influenced. In the mid-70s, I was invited to attend a lengthy seminar on homosexual practices and behavior that was sponsored by area law enforcement. In that day, in the 70s, homosexuality was a major crime problem. It was a felony to have sex between the same sexes. Many homosexuals were incarcerated. I knew of many in Texas and in Oklahoma, in their prisons. So it didn't come as any surprise to me that the very first person that I counseled with as a minister to the church in Dallas was a homosexual. He just walked in off the street. At least he was looking for help because it was everywhere. Thousands that the general public were even in denial in back in the 70s. Oh, we don't have that problem. Early and first encounters of same-sex activity, here's what happens. One may feel shame, but in most cases, what they remember is the pleasure and they remember what happened to them. In the homosexual community, so many times, the youth are drawn in with they are paid to play. Sexual encounters can occur most anywhere, probably places that you would never think of. A few would be a movie theater, a library, a gym, a coach, a teacher. In my high school, we had an English teacher, convicted, sent to prison. At another school in Oklahoma City, we had a music teacher, 
had the same outcome. Uh, it may come from a tutor you wouldn't think of. It comes to your home. They're alone many times with your child, teaching them something, working with them, but they make a homosexual advance to them. At sporting events, even in a church setting, thousands upon thousands upon thousands in the Roman Catholic Church. Now they're realizing in the Southern Baptist Convention, public bathrooms, a private conversation is engaged and maybe an offer is made, a pair of sneakers, an Xbox, other gifts, you know, that really gets kids' attention. Entertainment then is offered in various forms. Well, what entertainment? Well, they can come watch pornography. Every one of them will tell you, oh, I've got to go watch pornography. What some young kid, a young teenager, very young, he can't get his hands on it. So what does he do? He wants to watch it, and he's offered it. Movies offered rewards. Anything the homosexual will offer for their own personal satisfaction. See, you got all this hormone raging in a teenager. What do they desire more than anything? Money and pleasure. And out of their innocence, they will exchange the truth of God for a lie. Now, today, since homosexual behavior is accepted and it is approved by such a large segment of society, the outcome today is not a desire to go and seek treatment to be set free, but we have a powerful force that condones the behavior. It's acceptable. It's a respectable lifestyle. It's legal. And so let's punish and banish those who say otherwise. I mean, they'd lock me up for what I'm saying tonight. We're to be canceled, shunned, forbidden to be on social media. If personal experience, satisfaction, or gratification and desire determine right or wrong, then there's no logical reason why other sexual orientations aren't okay? Say, well, what about a sexual orientation towards children or animals or bisexuality or multiple partners? I mean, nothing should be stigmatized. My research convinces me that all homosexuals are pedophiles. I had a, a man um, in this city um, who works with these children all the time. He was sitting right there yesterday and we had a conversation. I figured, I knew I was going to teach on this, so I just asked him his opinion. And I told him, I said, my opinion is all homosexuals are pedophiles. He agreed. They are predators. Their behavior is born of deception. See, a homosexual is only interested in satisfying, gratifying, and pacifying their sexual desires. And homosexuals prey on the innocent 
and they attempt by whatever means possible to gratify their own lustful sexual desires. Now, not all homosexuals have experienced pedophilia, but why not? Either the fear of getting caught or a lack of opportunity. The internet provides all manner of entertainment a homosexual can fantasize about, but opportunity and risk are not factors to be considered in the desires of the heart. Pedophilia is at the heart of the trans movement. It's responsible for the funding of child trafficking and for other stratification. It is a multi-billion dollar industry. Children six years of age, uh, old and up, are kidnapped. They're sold into unimaginable forms of prostitution. First grade little girls require to turn four, five, six tricks a day. Did you go see the movie, Sound of Freedom? Mm -hmm. Read up on Tim Ballard's Operation Underground Railroad. He was a former agent for Homeland Security. He's at the head of the nation for knowledge concerning child trafficking and those who support the abomination. From the end of September 2022 through January of 23, in five months, there were 243,437 unaccompanied minors left at the border. An organization called Aerial Recovery rescued over 6,000 children just from Ukraine. Tim Ballard has encountered a Dutch political organization called PNVD, whose platform advocates for sexual relations with children as young as three years of age. It's an abomination. As creatures made in the image of God, we're to be moral beings responsible for our own actions, for the lust of the flesh, Sometimes people just want the wrong thing. It may be a generational curse. It may be a demonic influence. It may be sinful soul ties. Or it could just be association with wicked and evil companions. I mean, hell, no doubt's going to have to be enlarged in order to house the millions and millions there are of homosexuals, child traffickers, it's a cartel. You know, a cartel's not a handful. A cartel involves millions. And it is upon every single uh, nearly place in the, United, in, in the world. Maybe except maybe Singapore or places like that. No matter how we might think that we've been born one way, Christ insists that we must be born again a different way. One must be born again. Then one more question that comes up. Isn't the church supposed to be a place for broken people? Definitely. By all means. We need 
to be forgiven. We all need grace. The church is supposed to be full of redeemed sinners who are now been justified, sanctified, living a life of holiness. But born-again believers, that's the communicant membership of the church, like the membership of heaven, is made up of born-again, repentant sinners. See, if we preach a gospel with no call for repentance, we're preaching something other than the apostolic gospel. If we knowingly allow unconcerned, impotent, impenitent sinners into the membership and the ministry of the church, we are deceiving them. We're deceiving their souls and we're putting ours at risk as well. And if we think that people can find a savior without forsaking their sin, we don't know what sort of a savior Jesus really is. And he says, such were some of you. That's the hope-filled call to holiness for the sexual sinner and for every other kind of sinner. <coughs> so, loving the homosexual is not the question any more than every other sinner that's listed under the definition of pornea or those included in the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19-21. We are to love our enemies. We're to show love to all of God's creation. Loving someone is not a sin. We don't approve, agree, endorse, support, or, or condone homosexual behavior. The Bible declares a moral code, and without exception it states that the unacceptable the deplorable will not be in heaven. Let not your heart envy sinners. Proverbs 23, 17. He that saith unto the wicked, you are righteous, he shall the people curse, and the nations shall detest him. Proverbs 24 and 24. <clears throat> I think I better stop. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm reminded in your word that you say that we can take every thought captive. So help me to do that. I don't want to have any thoughts that are negative or impure. And especially I do not want thoughts that draw me into the world, into the world's way of thinking. I want a renewed mind that's mentioned in Romans chapter 12. So, Lord Jesus, help me to take charge of my thoughts and refuse to entertain those that do not please you or that lead me to be preoccupied with things that are outside of your will for my life. And for these things, I repent, I forsake, and I ask your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. We have.